I love you, Nora. Do you love me? Oh, I don't know, Jack. You're the only girl I've dated in, in two months. We get along fine. You do love me, don't you? I'll have to think about it. Can't be sorry that he's going to jail. People could go on believing in a fake like him until, well, until it was too late. This is Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and March is Fraud Prevention Month in Canada, which is a great opportunity to talk about fraud online. There is perhaps no better person to chat with on this topic than our guest for this episode, Dr. Cassandra Cross, who is Senior Research Fellow at the Cybersecurity Cooperative Research Center and Associate Professor at the Queensland University of Technology. I found the conversation enlightening, and I would encourage you to try out the perspective viewing fraud as a crime against a person with a property element, rather than its traditional classification as a property crime. Before we get to that, though, Dr. Cross has done so much work on online fraud, I wanted to know how she overcame the temptation of Queensland's sun and sand and found this particular topic. It wasn't my first choice, I I will be honest. I did kind of fall into both academia and my topic around fraud. So I did my PhD in criminology, but again, I originally wanted to be a lawyer. When I left high school, that was the goal, that was what I wanted to do. But it took me less than six months to realise that law was not really my interest. It wasn't what I was keen on doing. My textbooks to this day are still in their plastic, so clearly I wasn't the best student for the law subjects, but I was doing a double degree with justice, and I just loved it. I loved the discussions that we had. I loved the content. I realised that I was very much interested in the criminal justice system and the dynamics and complexities of that rather than the legal aspect and the, the practice of law as such. So that was how I ended up in criminology. Um, Towards the end of my PhD, I got a job working full-time at the Queensland Police Service. I was fortunate to get a contract position as a research analyst, um, which I originally started in road policing, in traffic. And again, that wasn't something that I envisaged that I would do. But that led to a permanent position in crime prevention. And at that point in time, I did feel that I was in my dream job. I was researching in crime prevention. I'd only just started that job and my boss at the time sent me off to um, the superintendent of the fraud squad in Queensland Police who wanted some research done in the area. And again, being honest, it wasn't something I was keen to do. Um, White collar crime was my least favourite subject at university. It wasn't something that I was interested in at the time. I, yeah, I had these moments of thinking, (laughs) why? But I was fortunate that I was given the flexibility to design my own research project around fraud. And I remember to this day the first interview that I did with a fraud victim. And I was sitting at their kitchen table and I it was a it was a beautiful gentleman who'd lost an incredible amount of money. And we started talking and he started sharing with me some of the details of his experiences and what had happened. And That was the moment, that was the turning point where I just started to see, I guess, the reality of the situation and what he had faced and the challenges that were there. And in that particular project, I spoke to 72 
people, I think it was, 72 seniors across Queensland around online fraud victimisation. And from that moment on, it was something that I knew I could make a difference in. So I was lucky to be given the Churchill Fellowship in 2011. So that was actually, it's 10 years ago. So it's a, it's a decade. It's, it's, it's been a while. And that gave me an incredible opportunity to go overseas <laughs> in pre-COVID times um, to learn from others across the UK, US and Canada. And again, that was a turning point for me. I would say that that Churchill Fellowship was a turning point, not only in my career, but my life. And after that, I came back and was able to get a job at QUT. Again, I wasn't looking to be an academic. I, it wasn't something that I had set out to do, but the opportunity came up. I was encouraged to apply. I got the job. And for me, I now can't imagine doing anything else. I can't imagine having a job other than what I do have because I'm in a very privileged position where I get to pursue the research that I'm interested in. I get to talk to victims, not only here in Australia, but but globally. And I guess what I'm trying to achieve is change, real change in the area for those that have experienced fraud. So I'm incredibly privileged to be in the position that I'm in, to be able to do a job that I love, even in COVID times, even though it's made it very difficult and challenging and different to what it previously was, there's a greater need now more than ever to look at this particular area. And offenders have really embraced COVID. They've embraced the situation that we find ourselves in globally. And victimisation is, is skyrocketing. There are millions of individuals globally who are being targeted by offenders and who are being defrauded and whose lives are being devastated in some ways. So if I can contribute to trying to improve that, to trying to better their experiences, to try and prevent the trauma that they go through for others, then that that's a win. That's what motivates me. Is that care for victims something that's been in sort of a common thread through your research since then? Absolutely. I think for me, the research that I guess that I want to do and that I've been fortunate to do has been very victim-driven. So I have been able to speak to um, hundreds of victims here in Australia and overseas around their experiences. And I think what I learned very early on was the isolation and stigma that's associated with fraud victimisation. And in many instances, I'm the first person that victims have spoken to. I'm the first person that they've felt comfortable or confident enough to disclose what's happened to them. And I am privileged to have their stories. I, I, I'm entrusted with these, these stories, that these incredibly devastating and heartbreaking stories that many of them have. And I guess it's, it's my goal to try and use their stories and to, to give them a voice that they otherwise don't have because far too often the victims are silenced. They don't have the ability to be acknowledged. They don't have the ability to get their story out. No one's kind of listening to them. No one is able to change their circumstances. And whilst I certainly can't promise to get them back their money, I can't promise them that the police will take the report or do anything, I can listen to them and I can provide that reassurance in some cases, and I can provide a listening ear, and I can also, I guess, provide them with a context around what's happened, that 
they are not alone, that they are not stupid, they are not foolish, that offenders are highly skilled individuals who target people for their vulnerabilities and weaknesses. So, again, that's one of the, the driving factors for doing the work that I do. And it very much for me has been focused around the victim perspective because I feel that that is what has been lacking in much of the research out there. When we talk about scams and cons and things, we often we often say that somebody fell victim to a, a scam. I guess that encourages us to blame them somewhat because they fell, but who's accountable when it comes to to scams and frauds? I think there's two interesting points that you that you picked up in in that question. So the first one is a little bit a little bit of a soapbox, a little bit of a rant for me, but I actually really dislike the word scams. And I know that it's part of our everyday language and it certainly has its place, but I just feel that in referencing these incidents as scams, that it does trivialise what happens. It does in some ways lay blame at the, the, the foot of the person who has been deceived. And from my perspective, in much of the work that I do, I am very deliberate in using the word fraud over scams because I feel we need to call it out for what it is. We need to acknowledge that people have been deceived, that they may have been active in, in, in what's happened in terms of transferring money to an offender, but they've done it under deception. They've done it under circumstances that ordinarily they wouldn't do. I, I feel that language in this area is really important and I acknowledge that not everyone <laughs> agrees with me and, and I, I certainly feel that that's also a cultural thing. I've noticed different countries use different terms. Um, I think Canada, for example, does use the word scam quite a lot. That's something that's been a learning journey for me as well <laughs> and being able to give up sometimes using the word scam and realising that that is appropriate. But I think there is a belief that that victims are gullible and that that they do kind of bring it on themselves. And I would really argue against that. I don't think I've ever met a victim who woke up in the morning and thought, hey, I'm going to be a victim of fraud today. I'm going to click a link. I'm going to send money to somebody who I don't know and I'm never going to see that money ever again. It's just not how it happens. And I think one of the, the strengths that I hope to use in my research around using the victim stories, around using the narratives and the actual words of the victims and the experiences that they've had, I hope to use that in a way that highlights to broader society and those in the community that this could happen to them, that the reality of fraud victimisation is remarkably different to how we think it happens. We think it only happens to, I guess, gullible, foolish, greedy people. We think it only happens to others. We never think that it could happen to ourselves. We never think it could happen to our family or our friends. And there's very much a sense of, I guess, othering in that, that only kind of the those people over there, others, they're the only ones that would fall for this. And it can be quite confronting, I think, in some of the conversations I've had at conferences and in some of the presentations to actually break it down and, and tell people everyone in this room is vulnerable. Everybody listening to this podcast is potentially vulnerable to fraud and it might be different types of fraud. What might target me successfully may not target you successfully, but everyone has a weakness or vulnerability that if targeted in the right way at the right time, 
can make them vulnerable. And that's difficult because you don't want to scare everybody. That's not kind of the message you want to lead with. But it's the truth. Yeah, I kind of think about it like um, like a bad prank. The, the, that was a thing for a while on the internet that everybody was doing prank <laughs> videos. But if, if you were in the street and you saw a fire person and they said to move that way because there's danger, you have a trust in that institution and in that uniform and you, you would probably do what they say. That's not being gullible. That's being, um, that's being part of, of a larger community and doing what's required. So to, to have a similar sort of situation on the internet where you've put trust in someone for, for whatever reason... I don't think that automatically makes you gullible. And, and it's the person who's dressed up like a fire person when they're not a fire person that, that I would be pointing the finger at personally rather than the person who listened to the instruction. Yeah. I think one of the challenges with that, though, is that the offender is invisible in this. So the online nature of a lot of fraud means that the offender is likely never known. So it's difficult for the victim to know genuinely who they're talking to. They have a, a vision. They have an idea of who they think they're talking to. They may have a picture. It's most likely not that person. Offenders, surprisingly, don't use their own name. So verifying identities online can be quite difficult. And I think in the absence of being able to point the blame or lay the blame at the offender, because we don't know who they are, we can't see them, we can't they're just they're not part of the equation, that it's very easy to blame the victim because they're the ones that are in front of us. They're the ones that, that we can see. And I think it it is very easy to think that somebody should have seen the warning signs, that they should have known better, that there's a belief that there were neon red flashing lights over these types of emails or interactions, and that's that's actually just not the case. So there's also some challenges around online communication. So there is some research that suggests that online communication um, creates what's what's known as a hyperpersonal relationship. So people are more likely to develop stronger feelings, intense feelings that are at a more rapid pace online than they are face to face. And I think there's a lot of merit in that. If you're going on a first date with someone to a restaurant you're probably not going to lay bare all of your baggage and your past relationships on that first date. But in an online context, I think it is very easy sometimes in those initial stages to be typing to somebody and to feel that there's less inhibitions there, that there's more confidence and trust early on in a relationship. And I've, I've seen that in some of the transcripts that some victims have given me. And very early on in the conversations, you can see that they are giving a lot of personal details that they're asking a lot of questions and the offender isn't giving them any answers but is grooming them around giving them that information and the offender is learning about their likes and dislikes and their potential vulnerabilities and looking for ways to target them. So I think the online nature of a lot of fraud adds to some of the challenges that victims face or individuals face in trying to determine is this false is this true and then also law enforcement and other agencies then have difficulties in trying to respond to that and to find an offender and and be able to hold them to account so most offenders I would argue do this with impunity there's very little chance that anything will happen and that's difficult that's difficult for victims to 
understand and to get their heads around because we expect police to be able to find an offender and bring them to justice. But that doesn't happen in, in, a, in a fraud or in a cyber context. The, these fraudsters are well-practised at what they do. It's their source of income. So, so what is it about what they're doing that makes it work? What makes scams so effective? Uh, uh, sorry, I've used that word. What makes frauds so effective? I think there's a number of factors that are relevant. I think, as I said before, it's around identifying a particular weakness or vulnerability. So offenders are very good at grooming an individual in those, I guess, initial stages of communication. They're very good at saying all of the right things to connect with somebody, to initiate that relationship, to start building trust and rapport. Offenders also use a number of social engineering techniques that we're aware of in other contexts. So some of the popular ones are urgency in terms of, I guess, the monetary requests that come through. So asking for money for an emergency, for whether it's a medical emergency or a criminal justice emergency, or having some sense around the fact that for an investment, for example, if you don't invest in this opportunity now, then the opportunity is gone. So there is a sense of urgency to a lot of it. There's other techniques, particularly around secrecy. So romance fraud in particular, I see that very often in terms of the offender telling the victim not to disclose their relationship to family and friends. So whereas if you were dating somebody and your friends knew about it, they might meet the person and they might kind of nudge you and say, listen, Cassandra, I'm not sure about that that person is something not right there. Um, in an online context, uh, offenders are very good at isolating the victim, creating this sense of, of secrecy, but under the guise of romance. So nobody else needs to know. Nobody else would understand our relationship. Um, they'll only want to ruin it for us, those types of things. There's a number of, of social engineering techniques that they use. But there's also, in some of the work that I've done, and I think this is something that's important that we're not yet fully understand, is the use of psychological abuse and, and coercive control in it. And in those types of scenarios, I would argue that offenders are able to wield a lot of power without that physical proximity. So I think what's really important about looking at some of the psychological abuse is that offenders are able to use techniques such as isolation, um, whereby they they do remove the victim from their family and friends and, and those networks. And they do, as I said, encourage the person not to disclose what's happening. Um, Monopolisation in terms of constantly communicating with the victim from day to night, um, wreaking havoc on their sleeping patterns and just having the victim constantly there questioning why they're not responding immediately or texting or it, it can be very intense. Um, I remember having one victim talk about the fact that they turned their phone off for a particular period of time and when they turned their phone back on, there was over 100 messages wow. around where are you, why aren't you responding to me, et cetera. So it, it can be very intense. And there's also other examples of, I guess, emotional withdrawal where if the offender doesn't get what they want, then they will just go offline for a couple of days or something will happen and they'll just kind of ghost the person. And 
if you're in what you think is a, a genuine relationship and you're communicating with someone constantly and then they just they, they cease to exist, that creates a heightened level of anxiety around, I guess, questioning what's happened, is something wrong with them, have you done something wrong yourself? And I think what's particularly disturbing in some of the, the interviews that I've done and also some of the transcripts that I've read is just the abuse that's leveled towards victims. So it's it's getting it's when the offender question gets the victim to kind of question themselves, when they question the love and the trust. So if a victim does ask why a particular amount of money needs to be transferred or seek to clarify something, then it's turned back on the victim of if you loved me, then you would send this or you don't trust me. And the offenders have the ability to really, I guess, just mess with the victim and they have the ability to put them off guard, to make them question themselves and do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. And I think it's a combination of these various techniques that they use, which renders it so successful. And I mean, a lot of my work has focused on romance fraud, but there's many different approaches out there that offenders use. And I would argue that they do use these type of techniques across across many types of fraud. And I don't think we really acknowledge that. I don't think we really truly understand yet the ways in which offenders can manipulate and exploit a person from sometimes the other side of the world. They don't have to be sitting in the same room. They don't have to be next to the person. I've had victims that felt so, I guess, vulnerable once they'd ceased communication with the offender, that they sold their houses, that they moved to a different place because they just felt that the offender knew where they lived, knew where they worked, knew their routines, and they didn't feel safe, despite the fact that I know the offender is hundreds of thousands of kilometres away and realistically isn't going to fly here, isn't going to pose them a physical harm. But the fear that they have around physical threats and around the, I guess, the emotional side of it is real, and that's hard to cope with. It seems like it would have quite an effect on people who've suffered from this, who've been victim. You said people moving house and changing their life completely for those that have been victimised in this way, how do they deal with that? Is there support for them? So sadly, there is limited support. I think this is one of the the driving factors for the work that I continue to do in this area is to try and improve this and try and somehow create support pathways. But I think, firstly, we have to acknowledge the reality of victimisation, the fact that it's not just about a loss of money. So I think far too often people think that fraud is really just around monetary loss, that victims may lose money, but that's it. But what actually happens is that there's a range of non-financial harm. So there's physical decline in their health. There's obviously varying levels of depression. There can be relationship breakdown between partners, between families, unemployment, homelessness. There was one victim I spoke to who had been living out of her car for a number of months because she had nowhere else to go. And then at the extreme levels, there's those victims that have considered suicide. And I've had a number of victims who have very kind of matter-of-factly told me of a time when they tried to end it or what things they'd put in place because they felt there was no other options. And we do know that there have been um, incidents, there have been 
victims that have taken their own lives and and that's tragic but I guess in terms of support that's out there it's it's very limited for a number of reasons I think the first one is the stigma that's attached that we don't really acknowledge the true harm and trauma of and severity of of fraud victimization so if we don't acknowledge the actual harm that's experienced by the victim, then there's limited ways to assist. Um, One of the challenges too, I think, in terms of fraud is that fraud is generally seen to be a property offence. It's not really understood as an offence against the person. And I think one of the the things that I'd love to see at some point, and I have tried to do a bit of advocacy in this area, is to try and get our governments and our police and our lawmakers to understand that fraud isn't just a property offence. It isn't just about money. That the way that fraud's occurring now is much more personal and has some of the same impacts that that violent crime has um, that we know about. And I think victims not being able to to claim victim status, not being able to kind of claim that within the criminal justice system is a disadvantage to, to them because we know for other categories of victim that the label as such gives them that status and gives them access to support. It gives them access to financial assistance where needed. And that's something that fraud victims aren't able to access at this point in time. Um, There have been some, I guess, positive examples across Australia and globally where there are support networks in place. Um, Australia, for a short period of time, trialled the use of face-to-face support groups for fraud victims. And I think that was really positive in terms of Firstly, acknowledging the nature of fraud victimisation, acknowledging that something needed to be done about it. It was very powerful to bring victims together so that they could also, I guess, understand that they were not alone. Because I think a lot of victims often think that they're the only ones that this has happened to. And sometimes, even in the projects that I've done, just at the end when kind of wrapping up and talking just a little bit about the project, there was one that we did Australia-wide and with, with one of my colleagues and we interviewed 80 victims across the country. And so we would say that at the end that we talked to 50 people at that stage or 70 other people and the victims would be genuinely shocked that there were 50 other people in the country that had experienced something similar to them. I mean, I know that there's thousands of Australians that have experienced this, yeah. but the victims themselves feel that that they're unique, that they are the only ones going through this. So it's positive to try and have support groups in that way, to bring people together, to have that collective experience. It does also pose challenges, though, and I think that's not just across the fraud space, but in terms of managing, I guess, expectations and around managing some of the trauma that, that victims are going through and managing interpersonal relationships, that can be quite challenging. But one of my favourite programs is actually based in Canada and it's the senior support unit that comes out of the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. I first met the volunteers there back in 2011 on my Churchill Fellowship and I was just in awe of the volunteers and the work that they do. I went back to Canada and interviewed a number of them around their role and the peer support that they provide and I think that's the model or something that I would really like to get running in Australia. I think the value of having peer support, of having someone that you can connect with who understands what you've been through, who may not have been a victim themselves but will offer that non-judgmental listening ear. 
I think that's really important. And I think one of the, the issues with fraud victimization is that most people don't seek support, that they kind of deal with it themselves. I guess the few that I've spoken to that have sought support from professionals or have already had a connection through some other, I guess, issue in their life. So they've already been seeing a counsellor or they've already been seeing a psychologist for something else. And so it's easier for them to access it for, for this particular, I guess, circumstance. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of better recognising the reality of fraud victimisation, understanding the severity of, of what can happen and then putting things in place to try and improve that. Because one of the things we do know is that once you've been a victim once, you're more than likely to be targeted again and again. So there's a there's an imperative there. There's a critical need to try and build strength and build resilience and, and help victims recover in order to hopefully negate any future victimisation. What about the police? What's the response like from police? Unfortunately, the police are not in a position to help many victims. And I think there's a there's a number of layers around the policing issues. So as I've said before, the nature of of many fraud incidents, the fact that it is online, that offenders don't use their own identities, et cetera, et cetera. I think that does genuinely pose challenges for police because I guess we expect police to be able to respond to these incidents in the same way that if my car is stolen or if my house is broken into, I would expect to call the police, I would expect that they would come, they would probably take a statement from me, they might take some photos, they might dust for fingerprints, etc. They may not find the offender, um, but I would still expect that type of response, whereas for online fraud and a number of cyber offences, the logistics of that just aren't there. So, again, one of the, the challenges is around jurisdiction. And we live in a, in a world where police derive most of their authority from geographical borders. So, for example, where I live in Queensland, the Queensland Police Service, they have powers within a prescribed area within the borders of Queensland. And... Generally speaking, they can't use those powers in New South Wales, over in Western Australia. They can't use them in, in Canada or over in the United Kingdom. And that poses challenges because the internet, as we know, is, is global and offenders use those jurisdictional issues to their advantage. So in many circumstances, the victim will be in one country, the offender will be in a second country, the victim might transfer money to a third country, it might go through a fourth country. And it's just very difficult for police to respond in a way that victims expect. And there has been certainly a lot of the research that I've done really highlights, I think, this disconnect between what the public expects police to do and what the police actually can do. Having said that, I also feel that fraud hasn't been a priority for many police agencies globally. So there are not enough resources to deal with the volume of this and the amount of loss attributed to fraud compared to the number of police that are available is not adequate and I don't think that that is restricted to any one jurisdiction. I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of educating police as well around the types of, again, the realities of fraud victimisation around how offenders are targeting victims and, and, and what's happening. And I have spoken to many victims who, when they went to the police, the response from various police agencies 
no one in particular, can be quite traumatic in and of itself. So there was one victim who was very clearly blamed by the police. They just laughed at her experience and they just sent her away and wouldn't take a report. And that's not an isolated event. So there are many police out there that are very knowledgeable in this area. And I think particularly those that work in the specialist units, the fraud and cyber units globally, who see this on a daily basis and who understand better some of the dynamics around this, the response from those police officers will be very different. But I think for many who interact with the general duties police officer or kind of the first response officer, it can often be a very different type of interaction. And I think for many victims, it's an additional layer of trauma. So they experience the fraud victimisation and there's a lot of harm and suffering associated with that. And then there's the additional layer of trauma that they then experience at the hands of the the criminal justice system in trying to get a response, in trying to lodge a complaint and in trying to get someone to recognise what has happened to them. So I think the policing aspect of this is very difficult. I don't think there's an easy solve. I don't think in the near future that it's necessarily going to improve. I think there's also challenges around the ways that we report this. So there are many um, jurisdictions that have central reporting for fraud and and cyber offences more broadly. And again, I think there's arguments to be made for and against kind of centralised models of reporting and there's benefits to it. Australia has it. I know Canada has it through the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. Obviously, the United Kingdom has it through Action Fraud. The US does have it through the Internet Crime Complaint Centre. But there are victims in some jurisdictions here in Australia who can't go to a local police station and police won't take their complaint. They refer them to an online mechanism. And I think in some ways that's that's really inappropriate because you're taking someone who's just been victimised through this one particular, I guess, type of technology and you're sending them back to that technology to lodge a, to lodge a complaint. And for some victims that that's really difficult and that's not the response that they expect. So there's a lot of layers, there's a lot of aspects to it. There's certainly, there's no blame to go on one particular place there's just a lot of challenges to try and to try and map out a better way to respond to victims in the future and i definitely don't have all of those answers so uh so what's next for you what answers are you looking at possibly solving or or at least looking looking for oh the answers that i'd love (laughs) the answers that i'd love to provide i mean i guess i do have i do have this notion where i would love to to solve the problem of fraud and and to improve the situation for victims. Um, At the moment, a lot of my work is focused around romance fraud in particular. So I have some some data from the ACCC, the Australian Competition Consumer Commission, around romance fraud reports here in Australia. Um, There's over 3,500 reports for a 13-month period that I've been working through, looking at some of the... I guess, themes that that are in there. And I guess I would hope to use that data to better understand the complexities of romance fraud in particular, to look at the different types, ways people are targeted. Um, I've just had a paper with uh, Professor Tom Holt that was published yesterday looking at military narratives. So there's, there's a tendency for a lot of offenders to take on a military identity in perpetrating romance fraud. And again, I think there's a number of reasons for that. Those in the military, we 
recognize their service. They're incredible people that put their life on the line literally for their country and and for the rest of us. So it's a strong identity in which offenders take on. And we looked in the article at the ways in which offenders use that particular military narrative and whether they use it just in their profile, so just using it, I guess, as an identity to connect with someone, or whether they actually use the narrative in a more, I guess, in a broader sense across the justification for sending money and as part of the storyline. So it was really good to get that article published yesterday. There's a number of other project ideas that I have. I think one of the most exciting things I've been doing recently is working with banks. So I think one of the the places we really can make a difference is working with banks and financial institutions because fraud is all about money. For an offender, it's all about getting money, whether it's a direct transfer from the victim, whether it's taking on their identity to get lines of credit. So at the end of the day, it's all about the money. So banks are unwittingly part of this. Banks are transferring money from victims to offenders. And there are a lot of challenges in that. There's challenges for banks to be able to identify these types of transactions because they're different to the credit card fraud that banks are very good at dealing with. They're different to some of the money laundering um, transactions that banks are able to pick up. And I think it's about trying to learn what some of the red flags are for these types of transactions because I would argue that they're very different to what banks are usually dealing with. So I've been working with one particular institution and that's that's been a brilliant experience and really exciting to map out the customer journey to look at the different points of interaction between the victim and the bank and to look at ways that banks can potentially intervene or provide greater information or or disrupt and we do know that I would say that banks are getting better that banks are starting to recognize this in a way that is beneficial for their customer and they're really starting to do some good work in this space so I think that's where I'm probably most excited about in the future around the potential to make a difference because I think the banks are in a position where they are actually can make a genuine difference to a number of victims and potentially by intervening earlier and and recognising these transactions earlier can hopefully save victims from sending large amounts of money and and losing all of their life savings. Something to look forward to. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for answering my questions and um, keep doing what you're doing. No worries. It was great to chat. Thank you once more to Dr. Cross for sharing her time with us, and you can find the links to the papers mentioned in this episode in the show notes. There will be bonus points available if you can tweet me at at Cybercrimology with the name of the animal that wanted to be included in the last few minutes of the show. This has been Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's only made possible by the kind guests sharing their time and their research. If you do have a question or a comment, you can always reach me at at Cybercrimology on Twitter or by old-fashioned email at cybercrimology at gmail.com.